0: to this week's Asia research story. Um, I'm Renee Jeffrey, and it's my pleasure to be hosting um, another great Asia research story. I'm really pleased that you can all join me um, today. Um, Really thrilled to be talking today to one of our fantastic and unbelievably energetic um, PhD students. Before I introduce her, um, I'd like to to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we're meeting, watching, and participating um, in today's event. Um, Today, I'm on the lands of the Jagara and Turrbal people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Um, As always, I welcome everybody who's um, joining us live on Zoom. Um, Can I just remind you all not to turn your cameras um, or microphones on um, during the presentation, um, because that just causes some issues with the editing. Um, And uh, there will be a short Q&A at the end of the session. Please submit your questions um, using the chat function and don't worry about waiting till the end. It's really nice for us to have some ready to go when we get to the Q&A part of um, the session. Uh, We'll be over on Twitter later um, in the afternoon to continue the conversation and our hashtag is ResearchingAsiaStories. For those who are listening to the recording um, or watching the video um, after, I hope you enjoy the conversation and that you can join us live um, at some point in the future. So I'm really excited to introduce this week's guest, um, Elise Stevenson. Uh, Elise is a PhD student at Griffith University, although she just submitted her thesis, so with any luck we won't be saying that for too much longer. (laughs) Um, Elise has a Bachelor of Asian and International Studies and a Bachelor of Communication from Griffith University. She was awarded first-class honours in government and international relations um, and was a university medalist. Uh, Elise has an incredibly impressive list of awards and appointments. If I read through them all, we wouldn't have any time for the conversation, so I'm just going to mention one or two of them. (laughs) Um, Elise has been named in the list of young women to watch in international affairs, um, the 30 under 30 LGBTI plus role models, um, and she won a United Nations Australia Association Community Award. Uh, She's the co-founder and director of the Social Good Outpost and a member of the board of Brisbane City Council. The list goes on and on and on, but in any case, welcome Elise. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's uh, really brilliant to be here and I looking, look forward to talking a bit more about what it means to research in Asia. Great. So obvious first question, you came to Griffith as an undergraduate to study Asian studies. What inspired your interest in Asia? Yeah, so I was actually pretty lucky. Um, all throughout
1: my childhood I grew up, um, my parents had lived before in uh, Japan, my mum learnt to play the Japanese harp, the Koto, and my dad learned um architecture over there. And they're actually part of a Griffith University trip to China um, uh, in the 80s, I believe, with the Vice-Chancellor. And so I was fortunate that my whole childhood was surrounded by um, wonderful people popping by from Asia and kind of sharing of their stories and and cultures and experiences. And so when it came to that crunch time to choose, you know, where I go and what I do, I thought, you know, really I'm just going to follow what I'm interested in and I was really interested in Asia and I looked around and Griffith was the obvious choice with the Griffith Asia Institute. So it's, it's kind of been um uh, something I think that's been building through my whole life actually, but um, I really feel at home here in the region and learning about, you know, everything that it has to
0: offer. So you have... Yeah, a great story of, of a childhood full of sort of yeah interesting sort of insights into Asia, and then you came to Griffith to do your undergraduate degree, and I can see that you know during that time you went on lots and lots of really interesting trips um, to events in the region. Um, you're a student delegate at summits and conferences. Um, you did a, a stint as a community development intern in Laos, um, part of your degree in Hong Kong. I mean, so a huge number of really amazing opportunities. Were there any sort of particular moments in those that were really sort of aha moments that really you know, changed how you thought about the world or your place in the world or the region um, sort of more specifically? Yeah, I think there were and I was reflecting on this only
1: earlier, but I think through my undergraduate um, degree, I was just very fortunate that I kind of came in to study Asia just as the government kind of announced this whole um, Australia in the Asian century. I think I was one of two students in my cohort studying wow. Asian studies, which is unbelievable. <laughs> and I thought no. just such a shame. But as a result, I was kind of in the right place at the right time. And so um I guess over this period of, of, of spending my time in the region, there's probably two periods that really kind of shifted the way that I perceived things or, or challenged, I guess, the way that I operated in the region. And the first would be, um, as you mentioned, when I went to Hong Kong on the New Colombo Plan Scholarship, I was conducting my honours research there at the time. Um, I was you know, doing a bit of comparative study between women leaders in Asia and in, in Australia. And I'd arrived just after the 2014 Hong Kong um, kind of protests had broken out, the umbrella movement, um, you know, kind of protesting about democracy and what was Hong Kong's place in the world, which of course are really big topics right now, um, (laughs) still and kind of have built upon. But during this period, I think you know I, I was researching people, and the, the vice chancellor of our university was getting death threats over in Hong Kong because he was standing up for gender equality. It was a time where you kind of had to navigate fractious uh, community relationships and really see how how was society going to adapt to a lot of the changes that was happening. You know, political, social, economic, and so a few years later, um, when I was doing my PhD and in twenty eighteen had kind of embarked on this three-month stint of travelling around the world to conduct my data collection. And, and I ended up landing back in Hong Kong. And it was just really fortuitous. Um, I was there for uh, a big international human rights festival that I was uh, co-curating with um, some members from UNDP, um, uh, Being LGBT in Asia, program. And we'd co- uh, co-curated this week-long intersectional human rights festival because I had this background of being in Hong Hong Kong and kind of just seeing how all of these community tensions kind of all came together, we had this really unique opportunity. It was the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We had this aim, let's get together 70 different NGOs, community groups, schools, um, kind of thought leaders, and we brought them all together to discuss issues like, you know, climate change or, um, you know, conflict resolution after major wars, um, or to discuss plastic pollution or gender equality. But the the thing that we did, which really pushed me to think more critically about both my research and my engagement more broadly in, in the region, was that we thought about, okay, well, how would climate change affect a transgendered woman in the Pacific Islands? Or how would conflict resolution affect a uh, deaf, intersex person from Pakistan? Um, How would um, things like migration and and refugee movements affect a lesbian, indigenous woman from the Myanmar-Thailand border? Um, We actually even had, as one of our speakers, the first openly gay prince in the world um, from India, which was Prince Menvendra Singohil. And and we just got to talk about all of these issues on so many different levels and really unpack this idea because, you know, I might be talking about human rights right now, but you can apply it to any sphere of um, research or your work. And basically this understanding that what is human rights for me isn't the same for others. Um, And I think that couldn't be more timely right now in this moment where, uh, you know, we're having all kinds of race relations happening across the world. And I think that that was a really big eye opener for me of when we're conducting research, when we're out there and engaging with communities, whatever kind of research or engagement we're doing, um, we have to make sure that we're coming at it from multiple angles to kind of uh, get the most holistic picture and, and ultimately provide the best solutions, which is really what I've tried to
0: do in my research and kind of career. Um, since then yeah oh, so that 's a great great segue to the next sort of thing I wanted to ask you about to do with your career because um, your career has really combined lots of different um, things you 've got some academic work there, but with diplomacy consulting design work and and so on. Um, somebody might look at what you 've done um, and think, "Oh wow, that person 's a bit hyperactive." Uh, <laughs> And maybe, maybe there's a bit of truth to that, um, but, but maybe there's a bit more to it than just being, you know, intellectually hyperactive and interested in lots of different things. So the, the title of your Asia story today was Anti-Fragility in Academia. And this, I'm guessing, is a reference to the book Anti-Fragile, um, Things That Gain From Disorder by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. What's that book about and, and how has it influenced how you've gone about sort of making choices about how to construct a career? Yeah, so I think I was, um,
1: I was in Hong Kong actually during my research when I first read um, Anti-Fragile. Um, definitely worth reading if, you, if you're interested in basically how, how do we grapple with a world full of in- uncertainty? And for me, what I kind of saw was I was at this point, I was about to finish my honours research, I was about to launch out there into the world. You know, there was a bit of professional and personal uncertainty of, of where, where were things going. And in fact, if you look at the research now, you know, kind of this generation is pitched to have at least five different careers, over 17 different jobs in their lifespan, uh, there's no way that the the jobs and the careers and and even the forms of work that we always thought were guaranteed and for sure, there's absolutely no way that that will continue. And, and COVID-19 has really proved that, you know, all of the things that we thought were a, were a certainty are, are kind of no longer there or they've gone out the window. Mm-hmm. And so I think that during this period of assessing, you know, where was I going to go next and what was I going to be able to have the most impact in, I really kind of clung to this idea of anti-fragile. And and I think um, Naseem, he talks about it um, in a really nice way. And he describes fragility as, you know, if you basically, um, uh, you know, apply a lot of stress and pressure and uncertainty to something and it breaks, that's something that's fragile. If you apply a lot of stress and pressure and, um, you know, uncertainty to something and it stays the same, that's resilience. But if you apply a lot of stress, pressure and uncertainty to something and it grows and gets better, that's the anti-fragile. And so when people are always talking about how we need to build, you know, resilient research, we need to build resilient communities, resilient business. I just think, you know, we don't actually want things to bounce back. We want them to bounce forwards. So this is all about how we evolve, how we adapt, and how we basically apply flexible mindsets to all that we do. When I was kind of at this point, therefore, of um, launching into my PhD, um, and I had, you know, very fortunately, um, the brilliant advice of my mentor at the time, basically said to me, you know, during this time, what's going to be most important is establishing your personal credibility. And that kind of deep credibility, that adaptability and that flexibility is therefore underpinned kind of my research trajectory and my approach to the way that we do academia. At this point, that's when I, I kind of both delved into the PhD um, and fortunately partnered up with my sister who was at a similar time of kind of um, making a lot of change to, to found Social Good Outpost, which is a design and strategy firm that works across Australia and Asia Pacific i think the the kind of outset of that is that we really need a lot of good ideas when it comes to academia i think that there's a big potential to be entrepreneurial in the way that we do research and and kind of build industry partnerships, build kind of um, engagement that goes beyond universities. And I think that this will be increasingly important as we're all kind of struggling to find, well, where is the right pathway forwards? How can we create, you know, um, comprehensive research that makes the impact, but also um, actually exists <laughs> in, a, in yeah. a world of uncertainty?
0: Yeah. yeah. So why why pursue the academic path in that academia? is not what it was. Um, you know, it's certainly not the, you know, get your tenure job for life and do the same thing for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, it's right now we're, you know, we're seeing the extreme fragility um, of the university sector um, and so on. And so much of what you do is outside the university um, sort of realm. So so why why pursue academia with all the other stuff? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that this is one of the really important parts of being um, agile and being impactful in academia. And I suppose if I had have just pursued a path of academia, as I have, you know, I've, I've published, you know, the number of um, required number of publications and I've done all of the other extra stuff, it's just that I've tried to add a little bit on top. And I suppose that it's what you add on top that really brings the value to what you do in academia. From my perspective, kind of when we're looking at these sorts of things, I've, I've always tried to look at well, what will kind of add to each other. So for instance, my research, my PhD in women's leadership in international relations, it required building really extensive uh, relationships and partnerships with kind of the, the organizations I was working with in order to be able to effectively, you know, be observational kind of on ground all across the world to really understand, well, what was the circumstances like? Now, to try and get um, support to do that as a PhD student would be very, very difficult without actually then also looking at, well, how can we strengthen this? And rather than kind of maybe doing a lot of stuff outside of the PhD, it's rather that I've brought everything in. Um, So the way that I see it is, you know, when I do a lot of my um, work with, social good outpost, or across um, the ASEAN region. Uh, I do a lot of keynotes on my research. I embed a lot of the practices of my research into my work. And and so for me, it's been this really nice way of balancing the theoretical knowledge and all of this really important stuff, Um, particularly now where we're seeing a decline in the kind of um, decline in experts, you know, People are kind of pulling down expertise, and, and I think right now is when we need to have this really high-level expert engagement out there with the people and with the communities, because that is the purpose of education, you know, to reach as many people as possible and to bring as many people as possible towards on that journey.
0: couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, so you've been, um, as part of one of these sort of other things you've been doing, is running a series of public diplomacy events um, in ASEAN through the Australia Now um, program. How did an opportunity like that even come along? Um, it just sounds like the most amazing sort of series of events. And I read somewhere that you'd organised 50 events mm. in a single year. Mm. It might months. boggles as to how that's even possible. But, yeah. but how did you really get yourself into that in the <laughs> first place? Well, at the start of um, last year,
1: actually, I, I sat down with my partner and I was looking at the year ahead and I thought, great, I have nothing on my calendar. I can uh-huh. just sit down and I can just write my PhD. That's a um, dangerous thing to do. And, yeah. But, <laughs> but, I'm every <laughs> <laughs> That's it. but what ended up happening, actually, I think the whole way along, and, and I think this is a really good other thing that I'd say is, you know, obviously we're publishing all of the time being in academia. But alongside that, I was trying to write as many um, kind of approachable, popular um, media kind of blogs and articles basically around this idea of what I perceived was missing from Australia's foreign policy at the time, which was, I I thought, youth, you know, we don't have a youth strategy for foreign affairs, whereas the US and um, Canada and lots of other kind of um, countries are building these sorts of strategies and engagement. Um, And so I've been writing on these things quietly. I've been organizing events like what I mentioned earlier in Hong Kong, um, and basically building this I guess practical expertise and experience in the region, So that when I got a call from, you know, um, DFAT one day saying, Hey, we're doing this really cool project, it the focus is on youth for the first time. You know, would you be interested in, in running it? Part of it, I just launched the opportunity and and I think that part of it was, you know, luck of being in the right place at the right time. But I'd also say that, you know, luck is built, um, you know, took 10 years of building credibility and expertise and positioning myself um, at the nexus of where I thought were really important areas. I mean, our region has the biggest youth population in the world. If you look at the research and data on, um, you know, conflict areas, the people that know what's going on on the ground, they're young people, um, you know, they're children, they're, they're, they're the next generation who can move about without being seen. They have a really good understanding of, of lots of different things. So from my mind, this is a really important, important um, uh, kind of space to, to, to be part of. Um, and so part of this has been basically working with, She in Canberra and the Australian embassies and high commissions across Southeast Asia to create a series of really impactful public diplomacy events that engage uh, international audiences and Australian audiences, kind of show the innovative potential of Australia, of which I believe that there is a lot. And basically run a lot of events and engagements around core topics of collaboration in our region. So um, climate change, uh, you know, uh, gender equality, um, startups, social enterprise, how do you adapt um, resiliently to kind of economic disruption? Uh, I think we did events on artificial intelligence, technology, sustainable fashion. <laughs> um, we even got to do just some super cool events like hold the, the first public event that we know of in Laos on LGBTI, um, or even months after the um, death penalty in phase three Sharia law was introduced into Brunei, going and working with communities in Brunei around LGBTI. I mean, some really, really cool events that I think were at the kind of cutting edge. But also, as you say, it was quite exhausting. So um, almost 50 events, um, working with over 3,000 people um, individually in the six months of last year, whilst trying to finish my PhD. Probably I would not recommend to others, (laughs) but I survived.
0: Exactly, exactly. Do you think, I mean, obviously there would have been significant political challenges involved in running these sorts of events and running events... You know, young people who, who want to be challenging the status quo, but that status quo has a lot of power and can do a lot of harm as well. So how did you, how did you balance that need to allow you know, young people to really, really challenge um, yeah. you know, people in positions of power and established views and values and things, but in a way that didn't sort of put them at risk?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great um, point, because, you know, in a lot of the areas that I was working in, um, you know, I'd, I'd rock up to events, for instance, and uh, we'd be warned, you know, go through the side gate, the police have got their cameras on that front gate, um, they want to know what you're talking about, you know, the the. And we did have to negotiate a few of the the topics in that because we really, yeah, we were about empowering um, a next generation of people, particularly in countries where there may have been more oppressive regimes or, um, you know, in Cambodia, for instance, um, you know, some of the regimes are kind of closing down on what young people can do and their access is very severely limited um, in many sectors. But what I did find was that, you know, business and the creative industries were the places where young people would go into and make change. And I just found it so fascinating, you know, when we're thinking about how do we empower any generations of, um, or groups of marginalised or minority people, often, we think, oh, you know, if they're not in politics, or if they're not in that, therefore, they're not making change, or or they're disengaged, or there's no even potential for us to engage with them, because who are they? What are they doing? But actually, when it came to a lot of these locations, you would just find, okay, if they are experiencing challenges getting into, you know, influencing change in this one sector, they might go into business or creative industries. And and social enterprise was actually a really big part of that. You know, people who would go in and they had a social outcome that they wanted to influence or affect, and they had a business as a means to provide the funding and kind of vehicle to make that change. So I think that that was a really fascinating part of it. And I think that negotiating uncertain, difficult, um, unsteady politics is always going to be a part of whatever work we do, particularly in national security, diplomacy, all these kinds of things. Mm. Um, But there, there are immense opportunities, and I think that's one of the beauties of Giving um, opportunities like this to people who are seeing things differently or have different connections and can maybe make a different inroad to to work with communities.
0: Yeah, and look, and there's look, there's a great next project there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> next the academic research project, doing mean, to look yeah. at how young people you know use alternative pathways and mechanisms. We've known for a long time that the arts is you know has been a great way of. Of challenging yeah. um, the status quo and doing things that are not necessarily politically acceptable, being mm-hmm. able to do that. But really interesting to hear that you know, business is another way of doing that, um, and social enterprise and so on. There is there is a fantastic study to be done there. So, livestock. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I've got a list of them now. <laughs> um. Um, look, you just had an article out um, in the European Journal of Politics and Gender. So, congratulations. Uh, you know, formal academic sort of tick in the box, (laughs) if you like, Um, and it's called um, Invisible While Visible, an Australian perspective on queer women's leaders um, in international affairs. Um, Great title. I keep talking to people about their titles. Everybody (laughs) seems to have fantastic titles. I'm going to have to go and start commissioning people to write better ones for me. (laughs) Um, So I don't have boring ones anymore. Um, But what do you mean by invisible invisible while visible?
1: Yeah, so um, if you know anything about women in international affairs or the research on women in international affairs, you'll know that there is not much out there. And in fact, um, in the history of our international relations, women have frequently been sidelined, totally excluded, or um, uh, essentially not seen as a useful category for analysis. So if you add then uh, sexuality or Uh, you know, looking at LGBTI as another um, lens to that, you'll find, again, um, there's even less on that. And in fact, that article published with the European Journal of Politics and Gender is one of the first uh, kind of articles that does expose um, not just, you know, what's it like to be queer, but also a woman in diplomacy. And one of the big things there that I found is, you know, there are actually phenomenal um, LGBTI diplomats out there. Um, you know, it's traditionally been a space in which was quite welcoming and friendly to LGBTI um, individuals, particularly given um, that, you know, often you might be posted to uh, far away places in the world, um, you know, and sometimes it was easier for people who didn't have families. So, you know, children, uh, which wasn't always possible for LGBTI people. So it was much easier to be posted. But as a consequence of this too, um, the research basically found that there was LGBTI people uh, face a deep exclusion within international affairs and, you know, I had story after story of women who might have their partner there on post but hadn't been able to be out or kind of public in the whole three or four years that they'd been there. So they basically had to keep that quiet. And if you've tried ever doing that for one day, trying not to reveal the gender of your partner in conversations, I, I urge you to try it one time. It's very, very difficult. So essentially, you know, this concept of uh, queer women being in these really highly visible roles, often under immense scrutiny, um, you know, very important, high stakes, um, all of these kinds of things, and yet still not being fully seen, not being able to be fully seen, and that being kind of a really big part of their experiences. The other thing I would say that was really interesting from the research was that even the heterosexual women that I interviewed kind of found that they were frequently typified as if they were gay, which to me was this kind of, I don't know, emblematic of othering that maybe women, you know, if they had short hair, if they were single at post, if they were just a senior person in leadership, they must be gay. And so I also thought that was quite interesting as as a bit of a finding there.
0: Um, I thought that was really interesting reading the article. I, I hadn't sort of expected yeah. To, yeah, to, to sort of read that. But you said at the same time, you, you've got this, this idea that women who are not queer were often typified as it, but that yeah. diplomatic privilege, to some extent, Protected mm. women who actually are queer. So you've got That's this exactly. very strange tension it's, there. It's
1: a very, yeah, it's such a unique world. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, there are still 70 countries in the world who criminalise homosexuality, I think 40 of which have a death penalty. When we're looking at those sort of statistics um, and when we're looking at the research, there's not necessarily any place that is safe. For instance, even the United States two years ago um, basically stopped issuing uh, partner visas to LGBTI people unless they were married, um, which, of course, has all kinds of implications. But generally speaking, you know, um, diplomacy does allow um, people of very diverse backgrounds and ethnicities to work in really contentious locations. I mean, imagine getting diplomatic privilege um, or immunity or, um, you know, the protections of your your whole country. Um, And so I think that there's kind of this really... Interesting dynamic there, and and actually one of the findings that I talk about is, you know, in in my research, in some cases, women, queer women were um, kind of the best capable of fulfilling the roles of the diplomat, given that diplomacy still relies on, you know, a dual role of a um, diplomat plus their spouse in order for the whole thing to function and work. And what I found was that women that went over with their husbands or with a male partner, often that... Um, male partner wouldn't be as likely to take up the unpaid labour of diplomacy, which is fair enough, whereas women were more likely to do that, or maybe more used to it. And so um, you'd see kind of uh, t- two women households who were actually extremely efficient and kind of um, were able to capable, um, take on quite a lot there. So there was a
0: lot of interesting nuances in the research. Mm. So this idea that, you know, female diplomats kind of need a wife. Oh, for sure. I don't want to say that. <laughs> that's really a really problematic thing, but right. it might actually be, you know, what what seems to work best. That's yeah. right. And one of my um, uh, it was mentioned
1: many times, but one one of my interviewees said, you know, um, the most successful women in the department are women with wives, and I mean that's quite interesting in itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So look, we're just about out of time. Um, So if anybody has any questions um, they'd like to ask Elise, please um, post them on the chat. I have um, an obvious question um, to finish up from me and that's what's next? Um, Yeah, what's the plan? Insofar as there can be one in this sort of uncertain time yes well it's um it's it is something, but I think I'm really excited about this
1: next um phase and you know, as we talked um earlier about this notion of anti fragility fortunately i in a way, I feel like I've been in training for the last five years of exactly this moment um and so For me, you know, research, I absolutely love it. I think there's just so much value going forwards. And so um, I'm definitely um, keen to pursue postdoctoral research. And I'm currently looking at a few different um, uh, things in there from kind of the research that you mentioned before, um, looking at space, women in space, um, a few other kind of frontier um, elements of international relations. But I'm also very keen. Um, I've got a few diplomatic programs that will be running for the next two years. Um, so we're carrying on working with Malaysia for 2020 and 2021 on public diplomacy events. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to just continue working in this space of you know gender equality, strategy, um, ASEAN engagement, and and moving forwards, really really
0: big community change. I think. Wow, well, that all sounds brilliant, and we can't wait to see yeah, see what you um, do next. So, thanks for um, joining us today and for a really, really fascinating uh, conversation. And just yet another sort of these Asia stories that really highlight how you can really carve out a very unique individual pathway um, in this sort of you know, academic life. I don't think anyone's story has been even remotely similar so far in the series. Um, People have, you know, found ways to to do their work and have an impact in the world in all sorts of really, really um, interesting sort of ways. Um, So, yeah, thanks very, very much for that and wish you all the best with whatever comes up next. Um, Next week, I'm going to be talking to uh, Dara Shah. Um, about uh, Indian women migrant workers um, and about um, female entrepreneurs. So I hope you can join me